Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. My name is Grant Parisi, and I'm joined today by Gloriane Idumika. Gloriane, welcome to our, to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Once, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Gloriane is a Cancer Research UK Clinical Research Fellow at University College London, currently undertaking research into how new, exciting therapies for liver cancer can be improved while working as a clinician in medical oncology. She's passionate about addressing race-related health inequalities through targeted outreach and increased representation in clinical research. She is a Black and Cancer mentor for U.S. and U.K.-based STEM students considering a career in cancer research. We're so pleased to have the opportunity to have you join us today, Gloriane. I am honoured to be asked to join you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Maybe we can start by your sharing just briefly the two areas that you, you concentrate in today professionally. So I am currently working as a Cancer Research UK Clinical Research Fellow. And all that means is that I'm a clinician by background. So I done my medical training and I'm currently working in research so that's where the research fellow element comes in I uh, I work currently in liver cancer primarily and work in a an immunology lab where we study how new immune therapies affect the immune system of patients and how we can improve their treatment outcomes and in addition to that I'm very interested in racial disparities in healthcare, particularly in oncology. And we can talk a bit more about that coming up. But most of my work in that area has mainly focused on prostate cancer patients. But I do other health outreach, which help aim to address um, racial disparities as well. Thank you. So you were born in Ghana and then moved to the UK in your early teens. And then you shared in, in our conversations offline, Gloriane, that the transition to the UK was not different in the ways that maybe one would expect, but perhaps it was it was different in, in other ways. Tell us more about those early years and the transition from, from Ghana to the UK. Yeah, so I was born in a very small town in Ghana. It's a gold mining town called Abwasi. So my, priv- my upbringing there was, I guess, relatively privileged and quite different to the rest of Ghana in that it was quite a diverse town. We had lots of expats working there. And so I grew up in a quite diverse neighbourhood, which is the main similarity when I moved to London, very kind of very diverse city, very busy. And so in that way, I was exposed to lots of different cultures growing up, although the predominant one was the, you know, mainly different Ghanaian tribes and so forth. I moved to London with my family in my early teens, mainly for educational reasons and just to carry on with my education with my my siblings. And also we have some family here. 
Um, it was very interesting. I mean, it was still quite diverse. Obviously, London's a much bigger city than the town I grew up in. But I think one of the things that stuck out to me was that although I had grown up in quite a diverse place anyway, I was now a minority and therefore a bit different to my peers. In Ghana, I was never really black. I was, I was just Glorianne. Um, I never really was that aware of my the color of my skin or my ethnicity or anything like that. I think everyone related in a very kind of everyone related to each other on, on just a personal level of who you were. It wasn't so much about whether you were black or white or, or, or not. But I did realize I was more aware of the fact that I was in the minority. And unfortunately, that awareness is carries through different spheres, you know, professionally or in university and carries on and obviously has implications or has had implications for me in terms of school and work, which we can talk about, you know, a bit more as well. But yeah, that was the main difference. So it wasn't that different in terms of what I was seeing around me, but I realized that actually I was a bit more aware of my the color of my skin than I was I ever had been leading up to that point, which is interesting. To put things in in context, you were one of six black students in your your medical school class. Yeah, yeah. So I came to do medicine in a slightly different way. So I initially studied and um, did an undergraduate degree in biomedical sciences at Imperial College, and then went on to do medicine as a postgraduate course. And actually, when I went to do my bachelor's degree, I was one of two black students in my on my course and then one of six in my medical school out of 250 students or so so it was quite interesting being in that kind of in in a minority group in that setting um, I realized that you know even and this kind of comes back to a bit of what we, we might talk about when it comes to racial uh, disparities but the curriculum doesn't really distinguish between that well between the differences related to race per se so you just learn about a disease and its and its causes and how you treat it but there there isn't much emphasis on how things might manifest differently in different races or in or in different ethnic groups and that's something that on reflection I, I kind of noticed I also noticed that because fewer people fewer black people go through to do say medical school there's less representation in the workforce of black doctors and so in my workplace currently I'm the only black oncology doctor and so patients notice that and I notice that um, and it's something that's being is improving I think but it's something that I try to harness for good in terms of being an advocate for patients and also trying to relate to patients in ways that maybe they can't relate to other other clinicians and so I think it's an observation that there needs to be better representation but actually being in the position that I am it gives me an opportunity to be able to do some of the things that perhaps my other colleagues might not be able to do just because I have a different perspective. Yeah but Love to circle back and, and discuss that more later um, in our in our conversation. But I'd I'd like to ask you first because you're pursuing your your PhD studying liver cancer at present, and you shared with me that liver cancer affects about five thousand people in the UK every year and, and forty thousand in the US, but the, the cure rate is is very low. And you're working on the new treatments that 
are being developed. Can you tell us maybe to start more about the disease itself and how it affects people and what the cures are that are available today? Yes, of course. And so, yeah, liver cancer is, so there are different types of liver liver cancer, or people may have heard of different types of liver cancer. Um, The kind I work on is primary liver cancer, which basically means that it's the cancer has started in the liver, not spread from elsewhere to the liver. And this kind of liver cancer occurs in about 5,000 people within the UK every year and more in the US, as you said. The striking thing about um, primary liver cancer is its lethality. So it's just as many people or almost as many people die every year from the disease as well. And unlike other cancers, the incidence is going up rather than going down. So you may know that there's been lots of advances in the field of cancer biology and cancer research. We have better ways of detection. We have better treatments. Uh, And so you would expect that, you know, the rate of detection or of detection or diagnosing people will be going down as we get better at treating the disease. But in liver cancer, it's interesting, it doesn't really respond to conventional chemotherapies. And so a lot of research has been done in the last few years to try and improve outcomes for patients. And about 18 months ago, it was found in clinical um, trials that drugs that activate and boost the immune system help patients with liver cancer. And so the way that these treatments work is that in the same way the immune system recognizes bacteria and viruses and fights against them, we're aiming to activate the immune system so that it better recognizes cancer cells. The immune system of of liver cancer patients aren't very good at doing that at the moment because patients are thought to be immunosuppressed. And so their ability to recognize cancer cells aren't very good. And this also feeds into why the cancer develops in the first place. My research at the moment is looking at blood and liver samples from patients and looking at what happens, what's going on with the immune system of these patients before they start treatment and what happens as a result of starting treatment. And I work in a really incredible lab, which is very experienced in, you know, looking at the cell level of these patients, blood and and, and the liver. So yeah, trying to use new techniques to study the differences between patients who respond and those who don't so that we can make suggestions as to how these treatments can can be improved. One thing I haven't mentioned is that even even despite these advances that we've had in the last 18 months, which really have revolutionized how we uh, we manage liver cancer patients, only 30% of patients respond even to those treatments. And so there's a massive need to understand a bit better who's likely to respond so that we can select patients to treat and then also try to improve the existing treatments for those who aren't likely to respond. So that's liver cancer in a nutshell. (laughs) It's a very exciting time to be researching liver cancer and the huge impact that your your work is having. Do you find that because of the very recent kind of breakthroughs there that more people are being attracted to field and there's the broader scientific or medical community is kind of rallying around that or or um, is your research relatively niche in terms of the the broader field for you? So yeah, that's a great point. So it is a very exciting time to be in this field and I'm very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to do the work that I do. Yes, so there is a lot of interest in the field 
And actually, my PhD is funded as part of a collaborative network called the Hunter Network. So it's a a network of over 11 academic centres across the world and academics from those groups trying to answer specific questions relating to liver cancer. And our main funder is um, Cancer Research UK, but includes others. And it's really, really nice to have that collaborative effort to try and address different questions relating to liver cancers. Of course, people can present really early, they can present really late, and those pose different challenges in terms of treatment strategies. And so my work is focusing mainly on advanced liver cancer, which is treated with medical treatments, but there are patients who may be treated with surgery or other types of treatments. And it's very useful to actually come together when we do to talk about the different challenges that face us with those patient groups. And so, yes, there's a lot of research being done and a lot of of that gets disseminated on a Europe-wide level or a a more international or more global level. The hope is that with the advances in immunotherapy, we can explore different combinations. So immunotherapy, basically referring to all therapies that activate the immune system, works in combination with other drugs. And so there are lots of clinical trials currently investigating combinations of of treatments that might help. And I'm currently working on a, on a trial with one of, of my supervisors trying to set up a trial that looks at the role of giving these treatments that are conventionally given to people with really advanced disease early on to people before they have their surgery to see whether we can actually improve their outcomes. Because at the moment, even if you're diagnosed with liver cancer very early and have surgery, there's about a 70% risk that the disease will come back within five years. And so we're hoping that by giving some of these new agents early on around the time of surgery, we'll be able to reduce that recurrence, um, that risk of recurrence in the future. And that's something that's currently in setup, but very exciting still. And you're working with patients clinically as, as well, in addition to your, your research. Yeah, so I, I see liver cancer patients as part of my clinical work, and I'm involved within the oncology team in counselling them about their disease, counselling them about what to expect from treatment and trying to address their concerns. But maintaining a clinical role whilst I do research has been really great because it also offers me a, a perfect opportunity to recruit patients into clinical trials and into research. And so it's very nice because I'm doing the research myself to be able to tell them exactly what to expect and also to really advocate for patients to be actively involved in the research that's done. It's very nice because the current combination of treatments that we offer is shortened to a TESO-BEV if anyone would be interested to look. (laughs) But the results that, that have guided this change in strategy of managing liver cancer patients has come directly from clinical trials. A lot of people have skepticisms about being involved in in trials and, you know, being used as a guinea pig. And it's nice to be able to show them evidence that these trials directly inform patient care and have the potential to really change the outlook for patients. So that's something I really enjoy about doing clinical and research at the same time. Yeah, I'm really pretty interested in a point that you mentioned near the the end there, the occasional distrust about clinical trials, which has been quite top of mind for us as a global community over the past two years with the outbreak of COVID and 
I wonder, do you see that as a as a distrust of you as a clinician, as a distrust of the process itself of science more broadly? Where are you seeing that that breakdown and and what's most successful in changing people's minds or changing their perspective um, Mm. about that? Interesting question. I think COVID posed quite unique challenges anyway, because there was a lot of momentum right from the beginning. And that allowed for things like the COVID vaccine and therapeutics relating to COVID to be generated very quickly. And so specifically to COVID, a lot of the distrust has centered around the speed at which a lot of these treatments have been developed. But more broadly, I think mistrust around clinical research in the broader sense often relates to lack of transparency and lack of understanding of what clinical research actually entails. And of course, research can range from just observational asking you, you know, questions about how you feel after a certain drug or with a certain diagnosis, all the way through to interventional, where we actually do something to you, including quite invasive things like, you know, surgery or doing specific procedures to try and understand more. So I think historically, science hasn't been very good at communicating transparently exactly what we're doing in terms of making the language accessible to patients and disseminating our results when we have results and bringing the patient along the journey of research. Oncology is quite good at doing that because it's a very research-driven specialty. It's an area of medicine that's constantly advancing because we need to understand more and more and more about how to win the fight against (laughs) this massive killer that is cancer. And so research has always been a huge part of the way that patients are managed and patients. And usually what happens is that with oncology patients will go through the conventional treatment strategies. And when there are no longer any options, they enroll in clinical trials, often because there's literally nothing else that can be done. And so that patient group tends to be less skeptical because they're hoping for a better outcome than conventional medicine can offer them. Whereas if you're approaching patients who have other options, for example, then again, that plays into why should you do the experimental. In terms of trying to address it, I think clear communication, trying to engage patients along the research design process, which we're increasingly trying to do. There have been previous issues in terms of the way that research was conducted in the past historically, which has fed into some of the mistrust that patients have. And across the world, various research ethic councils are trying to address those by putting in place mechanisms like, you know, making sure the patients are consented, making sure that they they have informed consent to so understand exactly what they're signing up to and can always withdraw. So specific things like that to try and make sure the patients are protected against harm and also against being unduly recruited into, into studies. Yeah, COVID, coming back to COVID, it's been one of the biggest kind of and most public tests of science integration within, uh, within society. And I think from the some of the outreach work I've done, mainly the concerns that people have raised have usually centered around the speed at which all of this has been generated. But usually what I say to counter that is, you know, scientists tend to do their own little thing, you know, before COVID and, and 
there's never been one thing that has unified the whole entire world um, around a problem and trying to find a solution. And so it's had massive, lots of investment. It's had lots of brilliant minds be, uh, around a specific question, which is why the vaccine came out so quickly, or vaccines, I should say. And my lab, I'm very fortunate to work with, a, with an amazing supervisor. And our lab does immunology work previously to do with liver disease, but actually repurposed for COVID and did a lot of COVID work. And so I'm able to talk about some of our COVID specific research and the fact that actually even our lab, which did liver cancer and, you know, hepatitis research previously is now doing COVID work and like likewise for many other research labs. And that's really helped with, with the speed with which, you know, our understanding has improved around, around the disease. I'm also very interested in exploring the other main body of your work that you mentioned at the at the top of the episode, investigating racial disparities in, in health outcomes for, for patients with prostate cancer. And it's a little bit of a, a somber topic here in, in the US since George Floyd's death in May of last year of, of 2020 and the momentum of the, the Black Lives Matter movement and racial injustice has been very front and center recently. So I wonder, was it those events, those movements or, or others or, or something else entirely that, that moved you to study racial disparities in your field, in the medical field? What brought you to that? So events around George Floyd's death happened at a time when, of course, the world was dealing with COVID, but also it meant that a lot of the world had stopped and so was aware and it and therefore it allowed that issue to really explode and and cause ripples across the world not just you know in the US but also here in the UK and the outrage and the protests that followed that really shed a lot of light on like you said the black lives matter movement but also on issues that specifically affect black people but the thing is that those issues have existed for a very long time they disparities in outcomes for black people has you, you know has been a problem right from the beginning of history really but i think what george floyd's death did and the black lives matter movement and the just the outpour of emotion and anger did was really shed light on the fact that in different spheres of life that black people are disadvantaged and in the context of of health it's meant that there's been closer look at how Black people are disadvantaged. For me personally, it wasn't specifically that. I had been doing some outreach work before, but on a personal level. So I'd been doing outreach in churches and speaking to various religious groups about various health concerns, including cancer, but also other things like high, high blood pressure, diabetes, and then much later on, COVID, hesitancy towards vaccines. Mm. But I think what's happened since George Floyd's death and also Black Lives Matter movement and everything we've, we've mentioned is that governments have become acutely aware and organisations have become acutely aware of the disparities. And so what I do notice is a lot of collaborative efforts to try and address these disparities that have been known about previously and to provide funding to look into it a bit more. I think previously 
it's been something that we've known that, you know, Black women in the UK are four times more likely to die during pregnancy, for example. And from a prostate cancer point of view, one in four Black men get prostate cancer versus one in eight um, white men. So these are things that aren't haven't just happened since 2020, but are being looked at more closely, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that organisations and people are trying to be allies towards a cause that is trying to reduce health disparity. But it's also obviously born from a painful thing and born from a long history of issues relating to, you know, Black people and and health. Who are your collaborators in this part of your research? And and have you found that is the medical, is the scientific community more receptive now to papers, research on racial disparities? Is there more funding for it? Is there a more welcoming attitude just because of the environment that we are in? And has that helped or is it still a challenging topic in you know the, the ivory tower what's the re- receptivity among your your colleagues in the community more broadly i'd be interested in knowing what that's like today and and if you have felt a change over the past few years so racial disparity research is in its relative infancy in the uk and it's not necessarily with, with prostate cancer anyway, it's not been studied in a huge amount of depth. And so I'm involved in an academic group which is trying to set up actually a study that specifically addresses questions about, we know that it, prostate cancer is more common in Black people, Black men compared with white men, but trying to really understand whether there are differences in the diagnostic paths that um, black men take versus white men, whether there are differences in the treatments that black men are offered versus white men, and also trying to, on a qualitative level, understand some of the barriers that black men might face in terms of accessing health care. Within the UK, the healthcare delivery is free at the point of contact, but in various anecdotal settings, people express differences in terms of their experience of that free healthcare. And so we're trying to set up studies that will really get to the bottom of it. We're collaborating with colleagues in the US who are more experienced in racial disparity research. And actually, yes, funders are more willing, um, but also have dedicated more time and, and money towards addressing these questions, just because they are, it is more obvious that they they are questions that need addressing. And, you know, prostate cancer research is one such charity that has put out a grant call showing an interest in this area of research, but also Cancer Research UK is doing some work in the area. The government commissioned a race ethnic ethnicity group um, to try and look into some of these disparities. And they've also made some recommendations, but while also recognising the fact that without really acknowledging that this patient group are at a disadvantage, potentially because of their race, it's then difficult to develop strategies to address the causes for that disadvantage. And so it's definitely being talked about more, and it's definitely more something that's in the limelight. And so my hope is that we will be able to 
have more groups looking at this at these questions and really trying to address them for for black men and black people as a whole in terms of different healthcare settings do you find that there is an increased amount of one word that comes to mind is is pressure but i don't know if that's the right word maybe expectation or or responsibility as We've discussed earlier on in our conversation, you are the only Black person in your field at present. And so does that excite you that you get to be at the forefront of like such an important issue? Or is there some amount of other emotions that you are you know, leading this research, even though Black people are the disadvantaged group? I'd be interested in your perspective on that that somewhat rambling question (laughs) (laughs) no it's not rambling at all I think it's an exciting opportunity to be honest to be in a position where I that I know can make a difference in this important area I know that trust plays a huge role in terms of a lot of the issues surrounding access engagement with healthcare and subsequently engagement with the plans, you know, with the management plans that are made with patients. There's a lot of emphasis on patient-centered care and making sure that the care that we deliver to patients are centered around them. And it's impossible to really do that unless we understand some of the challenges that patients have. And this can, it's not just relating to race, but different groups of people. And I think I'm in a privileged position of being able to understand some of the challenges that relate to being Black, but also that might inform some of, you know, some of the hesitancy that we might see, some of the systemic mistrust that people might have, some of the difficulties relating to engaging. I'm very fortunate to be working with excellent academics who know way more about prostate cancer than I do. And actually, none of them is black, but we all agree that this is an important area. So I don't feel alone in terms of knowing that this is an area that needs addressing. But I I do feel lucky to be able to bring to that team a perspective that perhaps highlights a bit more about the patient's lived experience, the patient's lived challenges, and some of the cultural and some of the other softer things that are difficult to put your finger on, but that may influence um, patients' ability to engage or or to access some of the care that we offer, because we can't really say that we're offering patient-centred care if we're not acknowledging all of the patient, including their race, including, you know, the things, you know, their gender, including lots of different factors that contribute to the challenges that they might have and the differences that they might have in terms of response to treatment or, or, or not. So at the same time, I do think that, yes, it is a, my parents used to say, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so, yes, there is a, a responsibility, but, you know, it's important for me anyway, that it's a, a responsibility that I'm happy to be part of and happy to take on. I'm new to the area of prostate cancer itself, and I hope that the insights that I offer is something that helps to address, uh, you know, a problem that needs addressing urgently. That's very well said. How important 
was it or is it in, in your work today, Gloria, and to have role models, people that, that look like you? Yeah, very important. One of the huge benefits that I had growing up in Ghana was basically the abundance of people who looked like me, both as peers and as role models. I knew lots of people who were older than me who were doing amazing things or had decided to do amazing things with their lives and in education. I also had peers who aspired to do really impressive things. So actually, that was really, really huge as a motivating factor. And one particular role model that I had was at a very young age, my next door neighbor. And I think at the age of six, I had decided that I wanted to become a doctor like she wanted to become a doctor. And I wanted to go to the same senior high school as she did. And then subsequently the same university that she did as well. And we used to talk about, you know, what we would do in the future. She really took me under her wing, really, even from I think I was in nursery or or year one, all the way through. And at the time, we were going to the same school. I then moved to the UK before I went to senior high school. And it definitely was one of the things I missed being in a space in the UK. And because I think, as I mentioned earlier, in Ghana, my ethnicity wasn't really, or my race really wasn't really a defining characteristic of who I was. I was just Glorianne. And the lack of similar role models, if not in number or just in in just the present, the lack of similar numbers, I guess, of role models or similar role models that looked like me was definitely felt. And it made some of the statistics I mentioned earlier in terms of the number of Black people in my undergrad degree and, and then subsequently in my medical school more striking personally. I did realize that in a a lot of situations I was the only in the room or one of a few in the room. And it made mentorship very important to me um, because I can tie be wanting to be a doctor to directly to this person who, you know, was my friend, but also a role model. And at some point in my teen years, I decided, oh, I want to cure cancer. Big task, <laughs> which I haven't managed yet, but I could tie it to this one person and it made me feel like, you know, having individuals that look like you makes different things seem possible. And so as a result, I've tried my best to engage in mentorship schemes during university and outside university. And the focus of that really has been to try and get young people from less privileged backgrounds interested in science, technology, engineering and maths based um, subjects um, whilst I was an undergraduate. And then um, more later on, I've become involved with Black in Cancer, which is an organisation that aims to provide mentorship for young Black students interested in cancer research. I hope that by doing that, I can be an example to my mentees. I'm really proud that some of my mentees have gone on to do STEM subjects in university and medicine, and some of them are doing really, really well. And that really gives me a lot of hope because it's important, representation is important for the workforce and the future workforce to feel like they're not out of place and that they can do whatever they want to do. But it's also important for patients, as we talked about before, because it influences the type of research questions that are asked. It influences the way we deliver care. It influences all aspects of work, really. So I have a lot of hope and I feel like 
mentoring provides that next step that takes it beyond just me doing something to basically hopefully reducing disparity through encouraging more people to come into STEM and also by just being that bridge that patients trust that little bit more because they see a bit of themselves in you that they might not do with other people. As has been the case for you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But what stage is your research at today? Have you begun to publish any findings or any sneak peeks ahead at where it's headed? So we haven't yet, from the prostate cancer point of view, we have written a paper which is being considered for publication. But before, you know, part of the rationale for the work that we're doing has come from some of my colleagues that I'm working with, which have defined the differences between, you know, black and white men, which have also shown actually quite powerfully one of my colleagues um, in the UK, who I really admire, did a, a retrospective study, which showed that actually when you give black, although the incidence rates are higher in black men, that when you treat them with equally good treatment, that they actually do better. And so it's better than their white counterparts for that particular treatment that was offered to them. And that's staggering because it suggests that, you know, we have the potential to really make a huge difference, not by doing something magical, but by basically managing to treat people the same. And that's sad. (laughs) It's quite moving because it's it's moving, but it also is it just shows that, you know, it's little things and little steps make a huge difference in terms of doing the best for all the patients we have, not just Black patients or just white patients. So in terms of publication, so there's that work, there's lots of work that within the group, but we're we're in the early stages of this particular project and we're trying to get funding to really address these questions, which will hopefully serve as a body, a body of research that will inform future research and future strategies for, for optimizing treatments for this patient group. I can't wait to see the results of your research in the in the coming years. And it's little things and in little steps, um, as you said, that make a world of difference. So you're doing fantastic work. Thank you so much for all that you're doing the medical community, um, your community more broadly, and for for joining us and sharing your story in, in our community on, on civic conversations today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and also for shedding light on on what's being done. Thank you. Of course. You can listen to more civic conversations online or on your favorite podcast app. Mm -hmm.